This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join me for The Bigger Picture, where I am joined by Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Um, Mike, rather a lot has happened since we last spoke. Uh, we have yet another <laughs> prime minister. <laughs> another yeah. one, yes. Yeah, definitely another one. Goodness me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just, uh, I, I don't quite really know where to begin. I suppose it's, it's one of those weeks where um, I'm reminded of that song, you, you Spring Me Right Round, Baby, Right Round. <laughs> and that, that, is, that is British politics at the moment. We are, we are on our, I think it's fourth or fifth Conservative Prime Minister since since 2010 i'm losing i'm losing count cameron may johnson yes fifth yeah yeah even i'm losing count now um a remarkable week in british politics again so i'm not going to use the word unprecedented because i feel a lot of this was a lot of this was i feel a lot of this was avoidable and uh, could have mm. known the, the implosion of the trust premiership spectacularly uh, we've seen our shortest serving prime minister in history, poor poor George Canning, and the Conservative Party has, with rapid, uh, <laughs> rapid almost indecency, moved to a new successor, a man of comparative political experience, but somebody who's seen as having the necessary economic credentials to calm the markets in the form of of Rishi Sunak. Uh, it's probably best to start with the, the circumstances regarding Truss's spectacular. Mm-hmm fall from from grace uh, i suspect a lot of this will you know gone over this with 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 professor tim evans in last week so i won't i won't dwell on it but suffice to say that uh, trust has been a marked woman for some time now although I, I don't think anyone else was quite expecting this to happen this implosion to happen so spectacularly last wednesday i was attending a briefing uh, by a senior political editor at a, a tory supporting national newspaper and who assured the assembled uh, lobbyists and politicos that the fight back had begun for Liz Truss. And he confidently predicted that she would be in post until the May elections next year. Uh, This is a person who has been in the lobby for many years. They're a very experienced political operator, but it just goes to show how making predictions makes a fool of us all. He made two predictions. Uh, the first of all, that trust would last until the spring, and secondly, that she would be succeeded by none other than it one Alexander Boris de Fethel Johnson. <laughs> right. I have to say that both, thankfully, uh, didn't come true. Mercifully, Liz Truss was gone within 24 hours of that prediction being made after a spectacular implosion in Commons discipline over a vote about fracking, which ironically, she must be the first Prime Minister in history to, to win a vote by a majority of 100 and yet to also lose the utter confidence of her colleagues as well. But by Thursday, by a week ago, uh, when we record this, she had stood outside Downing Street and given her notice that she was going to resign. Uh, I, I think to give her credit, actually, I think she realised pretty quickly that the writing was on the wall, that she had lost the confidence of her parliamentary colleagues. 
and even then it's been a pretty bruising experience for her and I think we have to be reminded as much as many of us might have gloated that Truss's libertarian Reaganite experiment ended as quickly as it started seeing her her young family her two teenage daughters and her husband standing outside watching watching their mother and and, and, their, and, their, and their and his wife deliver a speech would have been quite painful because obviously there would have been a lot of upheaval but the trust premiership marks i think the end of a, a rather unusual and brief experimentation with a, with a very unorthodox economic philosophy and a return to what many people would call sound money now interestingly trust remained very defiant until the end in her final speech she reiterated how she felt and in many ways her, her diagnosis of the problems that the UK faces of, of low growth and increasing you know, is, 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 is a right one we, we, we have lagged behind but many people would say that the answer to that is not cutting taxes not giving people back a selection of growth actually the, 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 the problem has been that we've had we've we've simply taken money out of the public sector at the wrong time and not invested enough long-term projects. What we have seen, though, is a, is a retrenchment. Almost, we've gone back to the the the, the early days of the uh, of this Tory government, in the sense that we're back to the kind of Thatcherite spending cuts, and we we have that coming down the line now. So, we had a curious few days when it emerged that we would have had a new prime minister within a week. The Conservative Parliamentary Party had to strike a balance of running a contest in which to replace her, in which they didn't want a protracted six-week one, so it was decided there would be a week-long contest with an online vote for members and a very high threshold for MPs, five times higher at 100 MPs needed mm-hmm. to get onto the ballot, which would only leave us with a, a potentially three candidates, and there were three candidates in the running over a very bizarre weekend. Um, the first one out the gate to declare was Penny Mordant, who was seen is very much, I would say, is the dark horse in the race, the leader of the House of Commons, someone with very limited cabinet experience, but also someone who perhaps could would, would be seen as a slightly more socially liberal uh, candidate in that sense, and probably the one most likely to do things a bit differently, but probably the, the most inexperienced and least well-defined mm. of the candidates in terms of what her economic philosophy would be, I'd argue. Then the... The establishment candidate, the there always is one of these things, the person who came second to Liz Trust play, only 20,000 votes in the Conservative Party membership as well. Coincidentally, ironically, the number of Tories members that might have been excluded from an online ballot by lacking an email address as well, one, one can't help but feel that, um, to quote the song, uh, the fix might have been in on this a little bit, and certainly a number of Tory members weren't happy they were denied a vote. Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor, uh, and a man who, to give him his dues, had warned over the summer of the consequences of Truss's uh, human hand grenade mm. approach to economics. And then, of course, the, the king over the water, the king in the Caribbean, as it were, uh, Boris Johnson, looking for the stage, a comeback only six weeks after leaving Number 10 Downing Street. And has, just be said, has, been, has, has really, I think, reaped the the rewards of not canvassing support among his parliamentary colleagues very effectively. Um, over the weekend, Penny Morton was the first to declare. 
unsurprisingly, she she'd come third last time narrowly in the MP ballot to Liz Truss. She she was seen as someone who might be quite popular with the grassroots. Mm. Intriguingly, uh, momentum quickly began to form behind Rishi Sunak, but he did not issue a formal declaration until Sunday. Uh, but a number of MPs then began coming out in favour of Boris Johnson. And these were, of course, the, the usual suspects, his Praetorian guard of former culture secretary Nadine Doris, James Dudridge, um, Lee Anderson. Not, I would say, figures in my mind in the Parliamentary Conservative Party who have a great deal of credibility. I, I would define them probably as sort of the slightly lunatic side of it as well. What became clear, though, was that Johnson had about a diehard group of about 50 or so MPs who were rowing behind him. But there was a big gap between the public declarations that were being issued for a variety of candidates. Penny Morden languished at about 25 over the weekend. Rishi Sunak quickly reached three figures, 120, 130, 150, almost half the parliamentary party by Monday morning when he announced his candidacy. He announced his candidacy on Sunday. But Boris Johnson had about 50, but his campaign continually insisted he, he had met the requisite number. But at nine o'clock on Sunday night, despite ringing round and insisting he was going mm. to do this, as predicted, as in 2016, in his third digit election, Boris Johnson bottled it. He decided not to run, insisting in a bizarre statement that he had the requisite number of people to back him, but he wouldn't unite the Conservative Party if he did. Now, there's a grain of truth in that. Yes, he would have, his candidacy would have split the Conservative Party irrevocably, he still has the privilege, Privileges Committee investigation hanging over him. Mm. But in an ultimate act of failure to see hubris, another reason why Johnson's premiership was cut short, he, he undoubtedly, in my mind, did not have the numbers to run. Even then, he would, mm. he would have struggled to have formed a government. Uh, a lot of people <laughs> who tried to back him, I would say, like Jim Zahawi, were left high and dry. And hopefully this is a lesson to them that Boris Johnson is not a reliable figure in the Conservative Party's contest, he's entirely out for himself. Hopefully, he's had a lesson that he will not try and stage a comeback again. We, of course, we don't know what may happen a couple of years down the line. But I think, thankfully, he, he didn't return to office because it would have been a, a, a very damaging thing for the country as a whole. But the Conservative Party clearly felt there were enough inside the Conservative Parliamentary Party who clearly felt he deserved another go. Uh, I call it the stab in the back myth, you know, that Boris Johnson mm. was effectively stabbed in the back by Rishi Sunak. And I don't like using this kind of violent language of politicians, but, you know, it was the sort of thing that was circulated around it, because obviously there's been things like Paul David Amos a year ago who've been subject to horrific acts of violence. But this, this notion that Boris was betrayed, actually, in the end, his cabinet colleagues simply realised he didn't have the credibility to carry on. Yes. Uh, and yes, Rishi, yes, Rishi Sunak has been hiding in the wings, waiting to, to, to take over. But this is politics. People, people you know, a Tory MP said to me, not too long ago, that anyone who isn't interested in the intrigue and in, in politics shouldn't be in politics at all, because you know, we all love a little bit of drama, and part of it, it's part and parcel, I think, of, of the way things are done at Westminster. And actually, it's it's, it's actually just something that's a good thing, because it's led it meant that we've had a prime minister who's effectively been ready to take over in Rishi Sunak, and thankfully he didn't do a David Cameron and schlep off to America and give up his seat, because otherwise we would have been left in arguably a, a more difficult situation yeah. for not having him in there now so a positive note in the sense that we have somebody who certainly in the short term is, is determined to be in, to stabilize things but it has to be said that Rishi Sunak's premiership is going to present some deep questions about for the Conservative Party but also 
he's by far he's he's by no means a panacea to all their problems and i think we, hopefully we could touch on that um in a moment okay well let's just take a brief break give you a chance to catch your breath at evernorth health services we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com/wonder sharing ideas about money this is share radio This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, uh, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. Uh, I mean, Mike, obviously, the the, the, the uh, enthronement of, of Rishi Sunak, all that happened so quickly compared to the protracted um, business um, we had that led to Liz Truss taking uh, office in number 10. Um, I mean, the first time around, of course, many of the MPs felt that they didn't you know, get enough say, and it was all down to members. This time, of course, the members are uh, aggrieved. But I mean, is, which of the processes do you think was most most fair? Um, because it just seemed to go on forever, the um, leadership contest during the summer. I think it has to be said that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably reveal a little bit of my own political colouring here, that, you know, it is ludicrous the Tories have been able to change leader for, have a third leader since the 2019 election and not have a general election here as well. Uh, yes, they could argue that, you know, they do have a, a small, you know, an effective working majority of 71, but the party is far from united and changing leader again, you know, the, largely due to, this isn't due to like, this isn't due to national events. This is due to self-inflicted turmoil mm. and infighting that's been rife arguably since last year when Boris Johnson fell. And I certainly think they were right to remove Boris Johnson. I think he'd lost that sense of legitimacy as the leader, even though he had that, you know. And of course, certainly we shouldn't we should never accept the the line from Boris Johnson that the that the, the mandate won in 2019 was a personal mandate by him. We don't mm. live in the presidential system. We have a party. Yeah. It's the Conservative Party that won that election and has the majority in Parliament. But equally, we're then presented with an issue of how can you legitimately change leader? The historical parallels here are probably looking back to heavily contested leadership elections under the Tories, say, in the 1990s. And also the one that I always come back to, which is probably the smoothest transfer of power there's ever been uh, with a contested leadership election, 1976, when Harold Wilson retired and we had a multi-way leadership election there with the Labour Party choosing uh James Callaghan to take off but interestingly that was done with the MPs and I, I look as a, a conservative party members have precious few um rights compared to what their labor counterparts the party is because the party is not a democratic party in how it's structured it's very top down very authoritarian yes members can campaign but they lack the labor party's numerous democratic quirks and movements of conference motions so in a sense, you could argue that if you're a Tory party member paying you £25 a year, voting for the leaders the least you can do, and it does give them a lot of influence. But equally speaking, we end up with the problem we've had with arguably every leader since, since Theresa May is that either you end up with a coronation with um, MPs coalescing around a single candidate in a moment due to 
some spectacular implosion by Boris Johnson on two of those occasions, or you end up in a situation like with Boris Johnson running in 2019 where, and with those trusts where the members will clearly support another candidate odds with the MPs. And unfortunately, you have to look at, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're accepting the government's argument, there isn't going to be an election in the, in the short term. You're in the middle of a parliament, so realistically you need to have a candidate that has the confidence of most of the parliamentary mm. colleagues as well. Now, this this surely should, you know, if the contest was based more on parliamentarians, it would encourage candidates like Liz Truss to ameliorate their position rather than working to a small base because they could simply declare a mandate for the membership. And Jeremy Corbyn had the same problem that, yes, Labour members did elect him, but the parliamentary party didn't back him. And that's one of the reasons why Labour was so ineffective. And it's, it's, got, it's got to Johnson again, and it's got to Truss as well. Now, at least with Sunak, he is, and you can see the way he's appointing his government at the moment, He's gone for a big church approach. He's going for, um, yes, he has a very clear bent on his economic philosophy, but he's looking back to, he's recognising there are a lot of experienced MPs who've been ministers, particularly at the middle ranking level on the back benches. He's kept Jeremy Hunt in there as chancellor. He's brought back an experience. Interestingly, uh, one of the more intriguing appointments is the fact that um, Liz Truss's former right-hand woman, Therese Coffey, has gone back to the Department for the Environment, where she was a junior minister for three or four years. So Sunak is looking for round pegs for round holes. But th- this, this reason about the leadership election that we go back to is the fact that the MPs really should be the ones choosing the prime minister in the middle of a term, because ultimately the parliamentary party knows these people well, and it forces the candidates to focus on the most important constituency, which is their members. Because ultimately the reason that Liz Truss failed to uh, hold on to power longer than she did was that she forgot about parliamentary management. This is the reason why Theresa May lasted three years, rather as Liz Truss lasted 44 days, because Theresa May learned very quickly after the 2017 election that party management was very important. And she, mm-hmm. and actually she managed to keep the parliamentary party on side, almost painfully, but she kept it going for two years, which is a remarkable balancing act. Boris Johnson was brought down by a lack of support. Now, if we were a year out from the election, you know, I think whoever it was uh, would arguably need to be looking to the country and certainly looking at the opinion polls today, Rishi Sunak has enjoyed a slight bounce. Labour are still over 25 points ahead of the moment, but the Tories are up five points and his favourables are actually touching those of Keir Starmer at this particular point in time. And so Labour have a very tricky problem here. But the outcome of the leadership election really should be decided by the parliamentarians mm. between elections. I think if the party is in opposition, that's a different matter because effectively um, there's more scope to campaign in the same way that Labour used to elect the shadow cabinet in the members used to elect shadow cabinet in opposition for Labour. I think the Tories could do that. But in between now, the members have chosen effectively two duds for the last time the Tory members chose a decent prime minister was arguably David Cameron. And even then he only lasted six years. And he also had the majority of support of MPs as well. So it's a tricky question, but ultimately the Tories have no legitimacy, I think, to be in government anymore, in, in my mind, if they continue to have chaos. And look, if Sunak stabilises the ship and gets things settled um, in the next six to 12 months, then I think realistically, you know, he can get away with going through to 2024 without an election. But that leads me on to his his economic philosophy, because what we're ultimately going to see is a return to spending cuts. 
the fiscal statement that was due to happen on Halloween has now been pushed to mid-November. Interestingly, only a week before Kwasi Kwarteng was going to deliver it. But because of the personality involved, because fundamentally you have a, a, a prime minister who is an ex-chancellor and knows the Treasury well and is also very much in hock to what Liz Truss would call Treasury orthodoxy, uh, but also a chancellor who is, is in step with him as well on this. We are going to see spending cuts potentially double digit, 10, 15% have apparently been penciled in. We're probably going to see quite a dire forecast from the OBR. There's potentially a fiscal gap here of uh, 35, 40 billion pounds that needs to be filled. Some of the solutions that are being touted to raise a small amount of the money needed for this are extending the freeze on tax thresholds, which is the most which is the largest revenue-raising measure that Sunak did when he was in the Treasury, effectively the stealth tax, because although you're not raising the rates, you're keeping, mm-hmm. you know, your people's, it's not rising in line with the inflation. So effectively, though, if people's pay increases, more people are pulled into the higher bracket of tax than into the basic rate of tax as well if they get pay increases. Uh, that's if they get pay increases at the moment as well, but it does it could raise money. There's also the potential for a windfall tax as well, which Sunak did mention, certainly on energy companies that I think would be a very sensible and also a very popular policy idea as well. The biggest thing, though, the bravest decision Sunak's going to make is whether or not to keep the triple lock on pensions. Because, yes, at a time, it's a very popular policy and no one wants to be seen to be taking away from older people in, in society. And certainly for politically, they, t- they vote, they tend to vote conservative. But we also have to look at this from an intergenerational fairness perspective as well. And we have to look at the fact that if we look at certainly who has benefited the most from rises in the working age benefits, uh, sorry, in benefits overall, it's been older people. Working age benefits have been cut. And Sunak, I think, is actually right to look at diluting the triple lock. It's a very expensive policy and it would be a very brave decision as well for him to do that. And also, I think it would win. It, it would help shield him, I think, from a lot of criticism from younger voters, he's not doing anything for them. It wouldn't win in many favours, but we have to also ultimately look at the fact that the people, broadly speaking, who have had seen the biggest rises in living standards have been older people as well. So I would suggest yes. that perhaps diluting it down to a two lock, you know, perhaps pegging it to a minimum rate increase to say a minimum of two and a half percent would be a smart thing to do. But ultimately, there are going to be difficult decisions coming down the line. A lot of these will be ideological as well, and not just out of economic necessity. Um, you talked a few weeks ago when we spoke about um, uh, Keir Starmer and and how I suppose I, I think the summary was not terribly exciting, but there won't be many people now who would bet against him being the next prime minister. So he could be prime minister in two years, possibly less. Um, who knows what the Conservative Party is capable of um, doing in the intervening period? Um, how ready do you think he is for government? Well, there's two things here. So. I think I think we have to remember that it's taken a spectacular car crash by this government for Labour to go to where it is in the polls. Now, yes, under Boris Johnson, they were pulling ahead. You know, they had a sort of sort of eight to ten point poll lead on average under Boris Johnson. But at this point in the cycle, with a full term of the government, given everything the country's been through, uh, you would expect Labour to be further ahead. And Starmer has had. He has struggled from a low base at the start. And yes, part of this is to do with the fact that Labour have spent the last 12 years effectively kicking themselves more often than they've spent kicking the Tories. Um, they've been more effective at, on opposing themselves. And Starmer hasn't arguably continued that. He's, he's, he's spent a lot of time on anti-Semitism. He's still kept Jeremy Corbyn outside the parliamentary mm-hmm. party. 
Labour has had a strong pitch against Trust because on that thing of economic competence. And, and, you know, I think that actually both her and Starmer are incredibly deep thinkers. They're very competent people, very successful people as well, and serious-minded people. So, but equally, that straight pitch is also something that very much that Hunt and Sunak are going to go for now. In Sunak's case, you know, you have someone who uh, unveiled the furlough scheme. And also Jeremy Hunt is a very calm and assured performer as well at the Treasury. So effectively, there is a chance, and I stress a chance here, the Tories have to try and regain some economic credibility here. So Labour needs a compelling vision here as well. And what I think they need to do is return to a theme of, I think we have to accept that big spending pledges are going to be off the table at this as well. But what Labour needs to do is come up with an idea that's going to capture people's minds. And this is this comes back to the same thing that's happened to every successive Labour win since 1945. Every time the parties want big, you know, beverage report, white heat of technology, you know, new Labour, new Britain. In Blair's case, it was education, education, education. There were a few things, but these weren't these. Don't forget, in '97, Labour came in the sense of change, not by not because they had radical policy ideas, but because they had ca- captured the mood. And, and it's it's all about finding the zeitgeist. Now, now this all sounds very vague, and to people who you know don't say follow politics, it's all about them looking at Starmer and believing the same way that the best thing I can do is point to Obama. Obama just had this change thing on his posters. People didn't know what it meant, but it was exciting, and. Starmer being exciting, unfortunately, isn't something that naturally comes to him. But I think if there's a theme, and, and for me, I, I would say, you know, it would be something around having a more active state. And by this, I don't mean a big state. I mean looking at where government can make interventions in people's lives to make it better. And I think something arguably around childcare or, or the early years stuff is good for Labour as well. Um, something on the NHS might be good too, but having an exciting element like Sure Start, but fundamentally we're not in 1992, we're not in 1997 now, we're in a mixture of both. Labor, somebody said to me the other day that, yes, Labour have 1997-style poll leads, but they have 1992 levels of support, and it's perfectly possible, given that Labour have to come from as far behind as they were in 1983, that we could end up with a hung parliament. Now, if Keir gets a majority of one, or he ends up with a majority, the largest party, He's done an amazing thing for Labour. He should go down as one of the Labour's greatest prime ministers in that mind because he's taken the party from near electoral oblivion to being back in power again. Um, and we certainly, I certainly wouldn't expect him to get a majority of 200. But they need that theme. They need to capture people's imaginations now. But, of course, there's the old adage as well that governments lose elections, oppositions don't win them. And this government has done so much damage to itself this year, so much self-inflicted damage. And, of course, of course, um, Rishi Sunak has the rather unique problem of the fact that he has never really had so many of his predecessors hovering around behind him. He's got Theresa May. He's got got Liz Truss and he's got Boris Johnson all hovering around behind him. And the yes. problem is with that the problem is that the party also, the moment he starts to flounder, and you know, all he has to do is put one foot wrong, and he's done this already with Suella Braveman and the same secretary, mm. they'll turn on him as well. So he may not get that honeymoon period that they all desire. And the question is, can the government come back from, you know, like it did in Black Wednesday? Can, you know, even though the economy was growing and in good shape by 1997, it didn't matter. The Tories were just seen as sleazy. 
and exhausted and poor John Major just wanted it over and done with. So yeah. it, it, it is going to be absolutely fascinating run up to the next election, Simon. So, but without that big idea, I think Labour's going to struggle to get cut through. Mike, thank you very much indeed. That's Mike Indian, political commentator, of course, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Mike will be back with me again in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.